Hello, dear friends, and welcome to another episode of Life of Love. We're here with an amazing guest, Daniel McQueen. He is a survivor of traumatic brain injury in the form of hemorrhages and hydrocephalus. And he's he's so much more than his medical diagnosis. Um, and you're, I think everyone's going to love his message. So please stick around. He has an offering and a call to action, which is powerful. And I just don't want you to miss any part of his story. So get comfortable and and be prepared to be inspired by curiosity and and just the spirit of fighting back because Daniel's the kind of guy that if someone tells him he can't do something, he's going to, to prove them wrong. And he's done it over and over again. So I'm just so delighted to share his amazing stories of not just one comeback, but two. Um, it's just when I hear his story, I think of Rocky Balboa fighting <laughs> and he gets knocked down and, you know, his trainers over there slicing his eye open so he can see and, and Daniel just comes back and has a good round and then gets knocked down again, just like Rocky. And, you know, he's, he's a true fighter. And, um, these stories of inspiration and courage are, are what are needed in this time of such uncertainty and, you know, it's so easy to become scared or a victim. So I'm really, really honored to present Daniel's story. And uh, Daniel, thank you for being on Life of Love. And thanks for being a friend to share. Hey, Julie, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh, well, again, so happy that you're here and sharing your time. You're up in Canada. And, you know, it's just a, a wonderful connection to be here with you. Can you share your your story. And I know it's a long story, but I, I just want you to, to give your perspective of where you were before your, your first incident with a brain injury. And, and I don't want to focus on your deficits, but I, I do want people to understand what, what you had and what you lost so that we can go from yeah, there. Yeah, for sure, Julie. Thank you. So my story takes place in, uh, started off in London, England. I was living there after a master's in Sweden, working in tech for a company called Hootsuite. I started having these headaches that were getting persistently worse over a few weeks. I went to A&E, which is accident and emergency in the UK. So like ER, I guess, in the States or something like that, I would gather. Uh, they ran some tests. They thought it was vertigo. They sent me home. I was in the tube getting something from my friend in Notting Hill. My vision blacked out. Like I couldn't see for a few minutes. I made my way to the platform and I waited a few minutes. And the vision came back. I went back to A&E the next day. And they get around the same test. It's like, this looks like vertigo. We'll send you home. But they told me on the way out, if the headaches were to continue, you could always get your eyes checked in an optometrist, right? The eyes are an extension of the brain. Cool. Next day, the headaches were ferocious, like next level painful. Like I'm talking like I'm taking painkillers, like multiple painkillers an hour to try to stem the pain. I find my way to Mr. Patel's chair. He's midway through the exam when he stops the exam. He excuses himself from the room and he comes back with a sealed envelope. He goes, you need to go directly to Moorfield's hospital, which I did. Well, Julie, tell a lie. I stopped at home first to grab a Jack Reacher book by Lee Child. I figured I'd be in for a wait and want something to read. Grabbed a phone, charging a bite to eat, and then uh, made my way to Moorfield's hospital. They ran the same test there. 
that escalated me up to Charing Cross Hospital. It turns out Julia had a dangerous buildup of pressure in my brain caused from a non-cancerous cyst in my pineal gland. Turns out it required emergency brain surgery tomorrow. Turns out my world's about to change altogether. So on June 21st, 2014, I was on the operating table. I was in the air flying to London when something went horribly wrong. I had a massive bleed in the brain, a brain hemorrhage. I think the cyst burst when they operated. One lands and finds I'm in critical condition. I was in a coma for four weeks, but was in and out of consciousness for months after this. Things were dicey, touch and go. When I was in a coma, they had to keep my core temperature down below 40 degrees, otherwise there'd be brain damage. The part of your brain that regulates all that stuff was broken in the brain hemorrhage. So they used ice blankets above and below me to keep my core temperature down. It's led to violent shivering. My family says it's horrible to watch. Alarms constantly went off as blood pressure spiked and heart rate too high. It was a roller coaster. My parents were told that he may not make this. But eventually it quieted down. And I woke up from the coma. And I began the process of rehab, which took five, six months to build myself back up. And I was slowly building myself back up. And it was... But yeah, I kind of dropped off within 12 hours. I was a healthy, active guy living in London to being in a coma at Charing Cross Hospital, clinging to life. And it went pretty sideways for my family pretty quickly. Wow. And here, your parents were in Canada, so they had they came over to the UK to be with you? Or were they? Yeah, so we exchanged like a quick volley of text messages for the brain surgery, and I dropped the message. The last message sent my mom before I went to emergency brain surgery was, I'll see you soon, mom. I think I'll have a new haircut next time I'll see you. Like, oh. and that seems like I'm cool, blase, but this man, I was terrified. I was terrified that I was going to die. I don't want my last message to be of a whimpering punk. Let's make it a bit, a bit uh, out there, a bit cheeky, a bit fun. But I was terrified. I wasn't sure to make it through this. And like I barely made it through this session, right? It was very, very narrow point and very difficult to make it through this gap. Mom came over to London to be there when I woke up and she arrived to find me in a coma, clinging to life. Um, so she landed in a world of hurt. Being told, you know what, he may not make it through this point. This is pretty difficult right now. And you know, my dad came out as well and it was it was touch and go for a few weeks there uh, where I wasn't sure I'd be making it out of the space. And if it made it out of the space, what state I'd be in after a brain injury, you're not sure what the quality of life's going to be. But, you know, I managed to make it through that difficult acute angle and managed to make it through there and build myself back up, which is uh, a slow, grueling, arduous process, but something I'm was very steadfast and building myself up with and, and climbing that mountain, if that makes sense. Right. That it's. I never realized they needed to keep the core temperature low. And just the idea that you're watching your son shivering and, you know, relying on this beep, beep of the monitors to, to reassure you that his heart's still pumping, that he's still breathe, getting oxygen, you know, it's like, wow. And then you said that the cyst bursts during the surgery. So did they have to go back in and, and try to 
resolve it or they just sort of let it resolve on its own because at that point it was pervasive through your brain? I'm, I'm trying to get an idea. Um, well, they didn't, when they went to remove the cyst, it burst and that caused the hemorrhage. So they didn't, I think it just like scattered debris and particles everywhere. Like, I think it just kind of, it's resolved now, but it was like, um, yeah. it wasn't a clean exit point. Had that gone smoothly, this might not have ever happened. It might've been a smooth entry exit. It may have been no issue at all, but like this spiraled hard. And like when I was in a coma, they had to keep my core temperature on. They also had to feed me with a breathing tube or the feeding tube. Right. And I'd rip this feeding tube out because I didn't like the feel of it. And I'd rip it out and rip it out again. And again, every time I would, they put it back in, they'd have to x-ray me to make sure it was in my stomach, not my lungs. And they put mitts around my hand mm-hmm. because I kept ripping it out. But I'd, 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 I'd kind of work these, these mittens for like days. I'd work these mittens and then rip out the feeding tube and they'd have to put it back down again. They probably hated me in the bloody ICU. Um, but I just hated the feeling of the feeding tube. My nose are just, oh, it's horrific. And it's like glucose stuff they're feeding you. It was, mm-hmm. uh, I don't have many members of the stage, but like I remember being woken up out of the coma. My mom dad and brother around the bed and I'm trying to talk, but I can't talk because the tracheotomy is removed and my breathing or my vocal cords were a bit tattered up. Couldn't speak. So give me a pen and paper. And I point at my brother, go, you write on the pen and paper, get me out of here. And I show it to him. He goes, what do you want me to do? But I'm like, you got tubes in and out of your body. Your one eye is wonky as hell. You can't walk. You can't talk. Like, you were in here for a while, bud. My initial reaction was like, this looks bad. This looks expensive. I'm not sure this is covered. I was uh, a European citizen living in, in, in the UK or Canadian living in the UK. So, like, I was covered by the medical space, which was lucky because this would have cost a fortune had it not been. But, like, it was uh, – this went sideways real quick. And – no one was prepared for what happened and how long it would take to build back up. I can imagine. And I can tell you're a very practical person. If you take that perspective or that came to your, your mind when you woke up from the coma. And I mean, it's interesting that you remember, you know, your, who was there and what your first instinct was. You needed to communicate. You needed you needed to get some resources. You need to get out of there. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what I was thinking at that stage, to be to be honest. But, like, I was like, I don't want to be here. Let's get out of here. This is not cool. And I was in the hospital for months after this, right? Like, it was not the casual visitor in the hospital. Like, I was a, I was an OG, a member of the Charing Cross Hospital team. I'll tell you that much. I was there for a while. Yeah, you were. Well, I'm so glad you pulled through that because... It sounded like a real battle. Do you, um, I'm just curious, do you have any, um, I know that you were put under, it was a planned procedure. So many times people don't have any like dreams or any kind of visitations or anything, but you know, your, your tumor was right there in the pineal gland. People tend to associate spirituality with a pineal gland. I had one dream that I recall from the coma that was quite odd. I was in a submarine deep underwater and there was a, an aquarium on the submarine and I couldn't figure out why the hell there was an aquarium on the submarine when we're already underwater. 
So I don't know what that means <laughs> or what the meaning behind that may be, but it was quite odd. And I was like, this is, this is ridiculous. Why would you spend money on this? You can just look out the window. <laughs> on an on a aquarium on a submarine. We're underwater already, bud. But my mind was going a million miles a minute and it was a bit scattered. And like this was grindy, difficult the dark, the darkest of the dark, and it was just horrible. But, you know, waking up and being told what happened to you, like, hey, Dan, you had a brain injury, like, you, you're in the coma, you can't talk or walk right now, but, like, you're alive, and your faculties are still there, you can still think, and your brain still functions. So, like, they told my parents, like, look, what's the prognosis for him when he makes it out of this? What's his situation going to be? Because the brain injury, I was worried, like, well, it's probably going to be significant damage. And, like, don't get me wrong. There's still some overlaying stuff that I'm still working through here. Right. But like, it's the doctor, Mr. Mendoza goes, you know, he could make a full recovery or like pretty close to a full recovery. And my parents are like, well, that's phenomenal because right now he's like, he's not sure you're going to make it out of his life. And he was always believed that I can make a full recovery. And like, it was, don't get me wrong. It was not without work and not without trials and tribulations, but like, I'm, I'd say I'm 75% now to where I was before battery, functionality, cognitive ability. Like I'd say 75% is where I'm at now. And like, that's maybe more than that, but like battery is 75%. And that's helpful for me to understand because I got to be more mindful of like not running myself ragged and, and being mindful of like keeping myself above that battery line. Cause when it gets below 50, I'm less pleasant below 30. I'm a bit of a prick. Mm-hmm. I gotta take a nap or take a, a meditation to recharge my battery. And that's like self, awareness that I've kind of built up in this, but like that's jumping ahead a bit farther. So let's go back a bit. Yeah, sure. I mean, that's what I was going to ask you about was, you know, you had the full support of a rehab team and you needed to regain speech. You're fine and gross motor. You had to learn how to walk again. And then you had to adjust your mindset, right? Because you had gone from a tech, you know, pretty sharp tech mind you know, traveling across your to a new country, you had to have a lot of skills that were, you know, very admired for them to to relocate you and to be that sharp. And IT is is a quick moving thing. So, you know, when when do you think the mindset kicked in um, as far as the rehab process? And and did your therapists did they focus on that at all, or is it something you you realized you were beating yourself up a little too much? No, like the Kiwi nurse who got me talking again, she talked to my parents for a while. She kind of understood who I was as a person and she took a stab and I'm forever grateful for this because she took a stab to get me to talk and shoot me out of the park. She sat me in front of these kids playing football, like soccer across the park, right? And she goes, damn, those kids across the park, do you see them over there? I'm like, yeah. She goes, those kids across the park, they don't think you're good enough to talk then they don't think you're good enough to talk. And I, that struck a chord. I realized it's kind of a trigger for me. And I yelled some things. I'll spare you and your <laughs> listeners, but I found my voice and I managed to get myself talking again because I was told I could, wasn't good enough to do it. How dare you talk to me this way? Who do you think you're talking to? Wasn't that clear and precise, but like vocalizing came out of me and I could speak and I got back to talking again. And she was convinced I'd be able to speak again because she knew what triggered me. And that motivation was so key that I understood that like being told I can't do something. Okay. Watch me. Like that's a trigger for me. 
And I've rode that wave of motivation to get me back to walking, talking, smiling, work, my job industry. Like I went back to work, fast forward a little bit here, but like, do you want to go back to your old job, Dan? Because I just moved into an implementation specialist. Implementation was a much more fun job, like a really prestigious, sexy job in the company. I really love the job. No, I'm an implementation specialist. I'm doing this because I've built myself to this capacity. I can go back to this job. I'm not going back to support, bless support, wonderful stuff. But like I wasn't support. I was implementation. I was told I could do that. So like I'm going to make this work. So motivation was a big part of this vibe. And like knowing like an inner belief in myself that I can do this is been so key for this process. And I've been steadfast with that. I've always known that I could do this and I've always known that I'm good enough to be here and let me prove you wrong. I can, I can do this. I can do this. And that's been a huge part of my vibe is I understand where motivation comes from. And I always say like, don't judge the motivation, ride the wave that comes. Don't wait for it to be some holistic, like pleasant motivation. Like if it's, it's like, I'm going to prove you wrong, then ride that wave because you can't, command the waves to come around the waves come when they come and like you got to ride the wave that comes and it may not be a holistic like surface wave it may be like a let me prove you wrong i'm better than you i'm better than you think i am kind of vibe and like you gotta ride that right that friction if you feel friction you can use that it doesn't always have to be a walk in the park sometimes it's a rough hell i'm i'm not happy here what am i gonna do right like i think that's a it's a common belief that oh you're gonna you're going to have a better mindset and it's going to come from a place of peace and joy and love. And sometimes it comes from a place of frustration, anxiety, and, and just, you know, rubbing your chin against the wall. Right. And I I did want, that's a great segue into your, um, we talked in the pre-interview about acceptance and that's the only way to ride a wave is to accept that you're in the ocean and the waves are coming. Right. So would you want to expand on that? Yeah, for sure. Thank you, Julie. So, Quickly, it became apparent in the hospital, like, my friend Milos always told me it was so pleasant to come visit you in the hospital, Dan, because you're always so upbeat and positive about this, and, like, you were never down negative. And I realized early on, like, look, this didn't kill you. The brain injury didn't kill you, right? You're in this position now where, like, you've got – you're learning how to walk, talk, and smile again. Like, you've had a brain injury. Like, you're off work. Like, you're, you're, you're in this, like, spiral of, like, Stop it. Don't go down the pity spiral, I call it. Don't be woes me, woes me, because it's not fair this happened to you, right? It's not fair this happened to you. But, like, guess what? No one's coming to save you. You've got to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Now, I had a lot of help, Julie. I had a ton of help. And, like, maybe you don't have that help. But I realized quickly it was it was like me me versus me almost more than anything else. Like, I've got to build myself back up slowly but surely. And by accepting, that's how you do that. So you can't wish it didn't happen. Wishing it didn't happen is not an active way to resolve it, but by wishing it didn't happen is not taking steps forward. But by accepting it, you can take steps forward. So by accepting this happened, like that's not saying like I'm gonna give up. It's just saying like, look, this happened. It wasn't fair, but guess what? It happened. And it's a question you got asked of that. I always ask, and what do you expect to have happen? Well, this doesn't happen to this person. Okay, cool. And and you run out of ands pretty quickly. And you realize that, like, the way you get out of this is you've got to go through it. And by accepting that it happened, you realize you can make gains to take steps forward. Because if you wish it didn't happen six months down the road, you're still wishing it didn't happen. But if I accept it today, six months down the road, I can be six months ahead. So acceptance was so key for this. And, like, 
I think that's been the actual name of the game. Like, and that's tough to hear from people that have gone through difficult stuff to accept it because you don't know what it's like to be this way. It's like, yeah, I, I, I don't know what it's like to move that. But I can tell you by accepting you, you can take it forward. You can progress yourself forward, which is so key for this because if you don't accept it, like you can't move forward. You can't leave it behind. You can't let go of it. Right, because it's always whispering in your shoulder. It's always it's always holding you down because you haven't faced it. You haven't come to peace with it. Yeah, it's just like they say the odds of being a human being are 400 trillion to one, right? 400 trillion to one to have a life in the first place. We're all given a hand of cards. This, this card was in my hand. There's nothing I could have done to mitigate this. This was a genetic thing that was in there, just like a little time bomb. And it went off. And shit went sideways for a minute. For more than a minute, probably for a couple days, probably a couple weeks. But it went sideways on you. But guess what? You're still alive. Am I going to muck the whole hand because I didn't like this one card? Like, no. Like, the odds of having a card hand are so ridiculously small. I'm not going to throw away the whole hand because of this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use this as rocket fuel to get me going. Like, now it's like, this is going to sound probably pretty conceited and arrogant. But like, what are you going to come at me with that I'm afraid I can't overcome? Like, do you know what I've been through? Like, do you know what I'm able to overcome? Like, I've got so much belief in myself that I can overcome anything in life because I've been able to do so much when so little was expected. When it was like, well, can he, is he going to be able to walk, talk, or smile? We don't know. Can he even be a functioning human being? We don't know. It's like, is he good enough to get back to work? We don't know. Like, can he get back to this? No, I don't know. Now, as a speaker, it's like, it's a pretty bold move. Like, getting laid off from your job. I'm like, I'm going to be a speaker now. It's like, cool. Like, this is a pretty bold move, Dan. I'm like, yeah. I'm taking big steps, big ass, big, big swings here. I'm like, I'm chasing this down because why not? Why can't I do this? Yeah, so you, you and, rehabbed, you got back to work after, was it 10 yeah. or 12 months of therapy? And then you're like, okay, you're ready to go back to work. And So I was in uh, about six months rehab in person and six months rehab at home. So about a year later, I made it back to the office um, after vocational therapy, occupational therapy, speech and language therapy. Um, you know, I go in the pool, like started going back to some water exercises, low impact with the exercise, right? And I'm like, it would take me 45 minutes to get changed and I'd swim for like five lengths and then get out and take 45 minutes to change again. Like it was slow, arduous, difficult stuff that I'm building back up. Got back to walking again. Like walking took forever to walk in. Um, I'll tell you one story about learning to walk in tune. Probably if you don't mind, yeah, Julie. please. So I've been in a wheelchair for about four months, I'd say. And I slowly got back to walking on the Zimmer frame on what I called the Ferrari, which is like a four-wheeled walkie you kind of waddle around quickly on. And I got time to walk in Toon Broadway, okay? So Toon Broadway is an area in South London, an area they call up and coming. Think loud sirens, drugs, gangs. It's dirty, it's hectic, it's busy. Walk with a cane, walk with an eye patch. I'm Bambi on ice after four months in a wheelchair. I turn the corner to walk on the high street for the first time in four months. Immediately get slammed into by someone. I stagger back a few feet. Someone scurries past on the right-hand side. I thought I was done with the rats. 
Someone had been stabbed on the sidewalk back here. I'm thinking, this is a pretty wild place to learn to walk. After a few days of this, I was thinking, this is the worst place to learn to walk in the world. What are you thinking? Can't they see I'm trying to walk here? Yeah. Can't they see I'm trying here? And then one day my perspective shifted. Maybe this isn't the worst place to learn to walk in the world. No. Maybe this is the best. If I can walk here, I can walk anywhere. So tune probably didn't change, right, Julie? Right. It did not change. It went from the worst to the best in my mind. And I reflected that. What are you looking at in your life? You're convinced is the worst. Convinced is the absolute worst. Hey, maybe it is. Or maybe you can find a way to turn down the suck a little bit. You can find a way to shift that perspective a little bit. When you change the way you look at the world, the world you look at can change. Like, and that's like a pretty profound thing to say now. Like, I'm only learning this after the fact. I didn't know this at the time. I just knew, like, maybe this isn't the worst. Maybe this, maybe this is the best. Like, reframe your mindset. And then, like, I look forward to those walks. But, like, walking was an arduous, difficult grind that took me two, three months to get the handle of it. I'm still, I walked with the cane for, like, six months after this, right? Like, it was not out of the woods. But everything was grimy and difficult, but it was a mindset thing more than anything else. Like, when I made that mindset shift, like, the best and the, or the worst and the best, like, wow. I'm not hating these walks in tune, brother. I relish them. Like, what a great opportunity to learn in the best place I'm going to walk in the world. And that may be smoke in some capacity. It's probably not the worst place to learn to walk in the world, but it's certainly not the easiest. Tune Broadway was a dumpster fire to walk in, but, like, I loved it. Because I was getting better by this. Like, you're making me better by giving this adversity. Like, you're strength testing myself. Don't wish it was easier. Make yourself better. Make yourself stronger. Did you have a lot of faith as a kid? Because to me, to believe in yourself that much, to put yourself in these positions and, and know that you you can rise to the occasion, that it takes a lot of faith. And I didn't know if that was something you... You grew up if your your parents were strong in that or I'm just I'm just curious what gives you this this fight I think I've always I'm not very faith-based to be honest Julie but I've, I've been, always had a very like big belief in myself always been some guy who dated what was, was dating a girl who was probably way way better than I was way better looking than I was and people I was like oh this guy's dating this girl and they're like yeah I'm here but mm-hmm. I'm good enough to be here. And like, I'd always have that chip in my shoulder playing soccer. I was always a bit undersized and I always be targeted and like tackled hard. And, you know, I'd get up quick and brush up against him. Like, Hey man, that's all you got. Like I always have that chip in my shoulder kind of vibe. And I wanted to prove you wrong. I wanted to prove you wrong. And like that, that vibe in me is like, so, so strong. Like that's such a motivating factor for me. And that's a bit of a dark place that motivation come from that chip on your shoulder. I'm now trying to transition my motivation for more of service-based stuff. So more of like helping you. Your success is my success. My success is your success. Less proving you wrong. Because I realized once I prove you wrong, motivation dissipates like that. Like it was never there. When it's service-based, your success is my success. It's a longer relationship. Um, but it's a deep desire to prove I'm good enough to be here and to prove you wrong that got me off the map for sure. Zero to one. That's what's kind of driven me so far, to be honest. That's beautiful. And it's a higher vibration to, to go from competition to right or wrong that, that polarity mindset to collaboration and celebration. That's a, it's a higher, 
it's a higher existence and you figured that out. Well, I watched um, the Michael Jordan documentary, The Last Dance. I'm not sure. Did you watch that, Julie? I've watched parts of it. And then his show, the the show on ESPN. Yeah, on Netflix or whatever. Yeah, but it was um, the most apparent thing for me in that documentary was how he motivated himself. Like being told he's not good enough to do something and then him going scorched earth and proving them wrong. And I realized that's a very high octane fuel to get things done. But I also noticed how bitter and jaded he was as a, as a superstar, as an old man. Like, you know, he's a, he's a bitter guy. Like, he's not a happy dude, Michael Jordan. It's like, this guy said this, and I proved him wrong here. And you think you can talk shit about me? And, like, it's like that fire in your belly. I've got that in spades. But I, I noticed that he said you were bitter and jaded with life. And, like, I don't want to be that guy. Like, I'm a happy-go-lucky guy. And, like, I don't want to have that bitterness inside me forever. I'm now trying to transition that very intentionally to more of a service base because there's a lot of that inside me as well. I want to help you. Service is a big part of my vibe. But like that Michael Jordan proving you wrong vibe is, is the first thing that came to mind. And that's the first thing that got me off the mat. So zero to one was Michael Jordan. One to 10 is now service. And I'm trying to scale that and grow that help and try to help you be better than yesterday through that. Well, I definitely feel that. And it is it is a tweak in the lens when somebody gets under your skin and you're just like that person's just such an ass like why are they so difficult why why are they so selfish or whatever whatever is triggering you at that moment if you can tweak the lens and say they're showing me something and it's a gift that i can feel this deeply i can even you know be annoyed by someone this much that's a gift because if everyone did exactly what you expected, if everybody followed this path of, you know, whatever pleases you, you'd have no nothing to rise above and you'd be completely bored. It reminds me of the Truman, the Truman story, the Jim Carrey movie, um, where he's just looking for some adventure, right? And he's just like, this can't be yeah. my life. Like every day is easy and I'm just this charm, this charm thing. And in his soul as a person, he knew that something was wrong and he sought, he sought for the drama because, you know, we don't want to admit it, but we need, we need challenges. Oh, for sure. Like, I think this experience has taught me like, look, I can do hard things. And I rise up to that occasion for sure. Like I realized I lost my job this past summer, Julie, or last, last summer, not this summer, but last summer. And my brother messaged me, he was down, so sorry to be able to job. I was at this company for nine years. Hootsie does it in nine years for Hootsie. Wrong side of a spreadsheet, got let go over corporate resizing. My brother goes, sorry you lost your job down, it's tough, but knowing you, you'll bounce back. <laughs> this is nothing, right? You've been through much worse. I'm like, you're right. It's been a very minor consideration. And I accepted it like that. Like It was, it was like an afternoon, I had a boozy lunch. Took my way down to the Mac store, bought a new computer, which I'm calling you on today. I'm a speaker tomorrow. Acceptance is so key. And like, I just like, oh, like, I guess I'm rising up. Like, I guess I'm leveling up because I got to be a speaker tomorrow, which means I need to be a speaker today. Which means I need to elevate my mindset to higher, higher frequencies, right? Like, I need to build myself back up. And that's so key for this is just like, rise up, rise up. Yeah, because we haven't even talked about your hydrocephalus, their second brain injury that knocked you down, you had to come back again. Yeah, so this one's a bit, um, this is a bit more 
This is more difficult. After a year of, of rehab, I've been back to work on a part-time basis for two half days a week. What would happen is I'd meet my mom at the tube and then she would go off on her coffee and then I would go to work just to go and showcase that I got off to work okay. One morning I didn't show up and she called me. I didn't answer my phone. She goes back to my flat, which is about 10 minutes walk from the tube. And she finds me unconscious on the floor. What had happened was the shunt that's my brain had blocked the hydrocephalus or water on the brain. Um, I was rushed to the hospital, had emergency brain surgery for the second time. I woke up in the hospital hearing the beeping of the heart monitor going off. Beep, beep, beep. What happened? What happened? What happened? I mean, hey, Dan, you had second brain surgery. We got the blockage, but you, you just had surgery again. And they go, well, all my progress is washed away. I'm working for a year to get back to work, a year to get back to the office to make it like get back to life. Like I was trying to put this behind me, right? And it clawed back in and grabbed my ankle and ripped me back down. And like, I described my recovery like a W. So the first setback's down here. I climbed back up to work. I'm maybe halfway up back to where I was. The second setback's not where the first one was much lower. The depths of the human experience, I call this. Where all your hopes and dreams are snooking at. Where you thought you had a chance, but almost back to normal life, eh? Ha, ha, ha. This, this, this death kind of grips you and pulls you back down and tells you, hey, bud, you ain't going nowhere. And... That was the lowest I was in my life because that was just like everything I've been working for for a year was stripped away from me in an instant. And like I had done rehab, so I wasn't able to go back to rehab in person. My mom had to fight tooth and nail to get um, remote rehab available for me. And I had to claw my way back up. And like it was everything. Like this was the first setback was tough like the first half I was tough but compared to this it was, it was a cakewalk like this was like the depths where everything was snickered at and just like oh you thought you had a chance but back to work oh you're making some progress uh-huh. it just like, pulled the rug out from under you and you knew how hard it was, how hard you worked to get back to 75% like you weren't even 100% yet when the rug got pulled out it was like you got you got slapped you got slapped back down yeah, it's just like it took it adds some perspective because I really like had to like level up myself and like accept this. I was down for a week, like I was low for a week, like this isn't fair, this is the worst. Pity spiraling out, like I was going down the pity spiral, like this isn't fair, why was me, what was me? And then I kind of stopped myself, like, hey man, you've done rehab before, you know how to do this better. The lessons learned are there. You may have lost the faculty to do this, but the lessons learned are there, you know how to do this better. So you can build yourself back up. So I kind of got the mindset around like, hey, don't get the wolves me down this pity spiral. Chop wood, carry water is what I call them. Let's get back to work. So I quickly righted the ship and started going the right direction and started building myself back up slowly but surely. And like small steps, small gains, slow is smooth, smooth is fast, like kind of vibe, pick myself back up. And like I haven't stopped. I've been climbing back up ever since. And it's like, but the mental fortitude it took to take that pivot and not go down the pity spiral after the second setback was the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. Because that was like all the work for a year was wiped out in an instant. And I had to really focus my mindset on getting back to like the pity spiral and be, be positive and, and climb back up and, and track on this. And that's what I'm trying to pass along in my talks now is like as a speaker. 
It's not what happens to you, but how you respond to it that matters, right? This, these instances should have wiped me out, okay? No doubt. Like, I was hanging out with my fingernails. Wasn't sure I'd make it out of this. Like, I was hanging out with my fingernails. I don't know if I can hold on any longer. I'm going to hang on as much as I can. And, and it broke. It broke for me twice, three times. Just keep going. There's this lovely, um, this lovely quote from the book called The Horse, The Fox, The Mole, and The the Boy or something like this. I might have butchered the name. I butchered the name for sure. And the boy's walked through a thick wood. And he can't see way through. He yells back to the horse. He goes, I can't see way through. And the horse goes, yells back. He goes, can you see the next step? And the boy goes back and goes, yes. And the horse says, well, then just take that. My whole life is about taking that next step. Don't look too far down the road. Just take the next step. And then hopefully the road will open up when you take the next step. But don't get too focused on like, I'm not here. I'm not there. Like, just can you see the next step? Then just take that. The amount of times I was, I was just like in a wheelchair. It took 45 minutes to get in the wheelchair, then 40, then 35, then 30. Like, do you know how farther along the road I am now compared to that moment in time? But like, if I thought about where I was at now, at that stage of my life, I would never make it there because it was way too far down the road. But the next step was to make it in the wheelchair in 30 minutes, not 35, but 30 minutes. Mm -hmm. And then 25, not 30. And then 20, not 25. Take the next step. If you can get that mindset in your vibe, like you can take the next step and you can progress, but like keep climbing that mountain, but take the next step. With everything in my life is to take the next step. I had eye surgery. We're going all over the map here, Julie. I'm sorry. <laughs> we had eye surgery last two months ago, three months ago, on the left eye. The first one, the left eye, I've had three surgeries. Um, two on the right, one on the left, and this was the second one on the left. So I've got double vision, right, from the brain injury, which means I see two of you, but it's not like this. It's like this. There's torsion in my eyes which is why I tilt my head a little bit because it's not a, like a light for like visual. And I got used to my eyesight like this for like nine years. We had surgery last two months ago and it, like it was, uh, it's changed everything. I'm turning my head a lot now to like look at you through my right eye because that's the eye I trust. The left eye it flutters a little bit. It's called like, um, I can't remember the name of it is, but it like flutters. And my dad goes, Dan, do you regret having the eye surgery? And I said, yeah, it changed everything. But having reflected upon it a bit more, I realized, like, no, I don't, because I took the next step. The step was the surgery, because maybe you can fix the double vision. And, like, it's not out of the woods yet. It's still – the little bit of the screen's wild for me, which is why my heads are, my eyes are bouncing around all the time. Like, I'm not meaning to be, like, yeah. disrespectful by looking around. I just I can't look at the screen because it's not there. It's like this, and it's fluttering a little bit. It's kind of wild. Mm-hmm. Um, but I took the next step there, which is key. And, like, that's the mindset I was going to take on board. Like, I'm so glad I took that next step because – that's how you get better. That's how you improve. That's how you climb the mountain by taking the next step. It's just by progressing and taking what's available for you. If you get worried about like looking too far down the road, you can't. You get overwhelmed and you can't make yourself forward. But like, take the next step, and that's what I did. And so with the eye, well, maybe we'll have eye surgery again. I don't know. But like, I'm glad and I stand behind taking that step because it was a step forward that I took. The right eye surgery made a big difference and improved my eyesight a lot. The left eye has changed everything. But maybe we'll have eye surgery again. We can rectify that. I'm not sure. But I stand by the choice to take the shot because I'm always taking that next step. And that's like 
your listeners can get one thing from those messages just to always take that next step. It makes sense. That was a random No, I mean, there's so much wisdom in it. It's the simplicity is, is huge because it's, you're present. You're, you know where you are. It's symbolic because you have to look up to take that next step. You have to square your body. You got to be centered, present, and just move forward with trust. And just taking the next step sounds like simple advice, but there are layers underneath that that are beautiful and courageous and and admirable. So I just I'm holding space for all your for all your courage. Well, thank you, Julie. I appreciate that. It's um, I'm the product of falling down seven times, getting up eight. Like I've failed my way to success by by stumbling, by stepping in it, by falling on my face again and again and again and again. But guess what? I'm standing back up every time. And as long as you stand back up, you can learn from it and improve your lot and not make that same mistake again. But you got to step back up. And it's difficult sometimes to step back up because you're like, well, I'll just keep getting knocked down. Like, yeah, you do. But like the time you get knocked down shortens every time. Like it's not, you're not going to get knocked down every time. And then like you slowly start standing up more and more. And like you got to go into this and like, and like relish that fight because that's making you better. Right. The bet, the worst, no, the best, like mindset is so key here. Right. Like it's not what happens to you, but how you respond to it that matters. It's a great quote I used to use all the time in my talks from Rolf Waldo Emerson. It goes, what lies behind us and what lies before us are tiny matters compared to what lies within us. Mm. And I know that inside me, there's a pretty resilient dude. And he can handle pretty much anything the world throws at him. I'm not tempting fate. I'm not tempting destruction. But I just know myself that I'm strong enough to handle this adversity. By going into it again... And again, and again, and again, and again. And it allows you to recreate. It allows you to come from resource. You're not a victim. You're, you're not a. You're not the result of your circumstances. You are who you are because of the choice you make in each and every moment. I think that's beautiful. Yeah, it's like you can't be a victim here because you'll never hear me say the word victim because that's a mindset that I think you take on board to like. Pass responsibility to someone else. When you give someone responsibility. Yeah, I don't want to give that away because like it's not I'm not a victim here. Like, no, no, it's like this isn't fair, this happened to me. Sure, it's not fair, it's happening. But like, guess what? It happened. And by saying it's not fair and like passing the buck, well, it's not fair, it happened. Well, cool. So I guess I'm just gonna mail in my chips now for the rest of my life. Like, no, that that's bullshit. Like that's not cool. It's it's in you, man. Like it's 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 four hundred trillion to one, right? 400 trillion wouldn't have a life in the first place. I'm going to muck the whole hand because I don't like that card. It's like, no, like, like find that inside you to crack on and just, and fight, just keep fighting. And like, remember me and my, my doctor Jens, he, he goes, you haven't lost the light in your eyes, Dan. And I go, no, like I'm, I'm not going to lose the light. Cause like that, this light is for the limit. Cause people, I guess, lose that, like, the spark of life when they go through this because like they just feel dejected and like nothing matters and nothing they can do controls it and they lose that fire in their eyes. But like that fire in your eyes is your life. And that I'm never going to lose that. Not as long as I can hold, help it. Right. Like I'm going to keep fighting as long as I can. And that's what's driven you to share your story and be a motivational speaker 
And I'd love to um, share with the audience, your website is macqueen, macqueendan.com. Yeah, macqueendan.com, a motivational speaker, a keynote speaker. You can see my demo reel on there as well as the contact form. Um, McQueen Dan across the socials as well. Um, I'm speaking now because I had a lot of help to get back up to where I'm at today. Maybe you don't have that help. And if I don't have the help, I'm not here mm-hmm. straight up. But I can give you the lessons learned just really from this podcast. Like these lessons learned, they're not. Maybe they're they're like whimsical lessons. I don't know. But like they've helped me get back to where I'm at today. So there's some real lessons, some real nuggets of gold in here that you can mine and figure out like that mindset piece, the worst and the best. Like you have that, like walking into high street is not the worst, but the best place to walk in the world. That changed everything for me. I began walking those streets like with the purpose, with the motivation, with a swagger, because I'm learning to get better here. But if you, if you, if you just say this is not fair, then you just get sheepish and weak and meek and. You don't want to walk in tune Broadway, but like, I loved it. I loved that fight. The, the dog in me loved it. So the motivation is to help is service-based now. It's to, to help you be better than yesterday and help your team be better than yesterday. Well, thank you. Because I believe that you can control a lot of this in your life. And if you allow yourself to know that mindset, you can do a lot of great things. Yes, you're precious. And there's only one of you available. Everyone listening, you are the only authentic you in the whole wide world and your gifts deserve to be shared. And And please never lose your light. Be like Dan. <laughs> Not like Mike. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> Michael Jordan. <laughs> well, Mike, like, I got a lot of Michael Jordan inside me. I know that for sure. And like, that's... I'm grateful for that because it got me off the mat. Zero to one was Michael Jordan, but now one to 10 is service. Cause I'm trying to pivot this and like be more intentional with how I show up for myself and others. Um, and maybe that means I'm not as good as Michael Jordan. Sure. But like, I'm happy to not be as good as Michael Jordan. That's okay. But I know that I got him inside me. I'm trying to like control that, that dog in me, if that makes sense. Yeah. It's in your awareness and your practices and mindfulness and meditation. It helps you be more clear. Oh, I've enjoyed our time so much and I can't wait to share this. And I encourage if anyone listening has a friend or someone you thought of having challenges, you know, just take these nuggets. They apply to every situation, difficult friendships, parenting. It applies to, you know, your financial status. These things can be applied to any single thing in your life that you're not happy with. So please use this, use his suffering to help propel you. And uh, that's what we're all about is making our life, you know, every, every moment's a chance to live the life of your dreams. So thank you so much for sharing, Dan. Julie, thanks so much for having me on your podcast. I look forward to, to chatting with you later.